the idea is it's it's a it's a moment in time, and historically this has been true for other pandemics, when we experience you know some really horrible things, and it's the result, and as a result, people tend to reconsider uh, their lives, their careers. Uh, how they spend their time, where they live, and so on and so forth. And we can see all of this happening uh, with this pandemic. That is Hofstra University President Susan Poser describing the pandemic as a portal to the future, a doorway Hofstra's ninth president is eager to open, and one of the key topics discussed on today's episode of Spark, the Innovate Long Island podcast. Welcome to the show, dear listeners. Class is in session. This is Spark, the Innovate Long Island podcast, featuring up-close conversations with the inventors, investors, executives, and entrepreneurs fueling the dynamic Long Island innovation economy. Spark is a production of Innovate Long Island, the home of exceptional thought in Nassau and Suffolk and beyond. Today's episode is made possible by the generous support of Stony Brook-based Thermolift, where brilliant technology and singular focus are creating the future of clean energy. Change is in the air at Hofstra University, the heart of Nassau County's village of Hempstead, and a true jewel of the Long Island academic crown. In December 2020, Dr. Susan Poser was named Hofstra's ninth president, succeeding longtime president and now president emeritus Stuart Rabinowitz, who himself led the university through two decades of change and growth. In August, she officially took the reins. And in October, she was ceremoniously inaugurated, a celebration of the first woman to serve as Hofstra president and the start of what promises to be another era of transformation for Long Island's largest private university. Innovation, you see, is kind of Dr. Poser's thing. Uh, As provost of the University of Illinois Chicago, she spearheaded multiple initiatives focused on enhancing faculty and student diversity, including a bridge program for hiring underrepresented postdoctoral fellows and the construction of new student centers for Arab students and students with disabilities. And at her October 1st inauguration, the new president announced a year-long project that will solicit input from the Hofstra community, faculty, students, trustees, everyone, on where the university goes in a post-pandemic world and how it gets there. That, on top of managing the day-to-day of what is essentially a small city, Hofstra boasts 117 buildings across 244 acres, total student enrollment exceeding 10,000, and more than 2,500 faculty and staff members. Susan Poser is obviously a busy woman, and we can't thank her enough for spending a few minutes with us today. Doctor, welcome to Spark. Thank you, Greg. Very happy to be here. Uh, First of all, congratulations on the new job. Uh, It must be exhilarating to take command of a a multifaceted institution uh, with so much going on, so many moving parts. It it is indeed. And um, there's been a wonderful foundation built here over the past 10 or 20 years. And I'm very excited to, to use the cliche to take us all to the new level. You, uh, you have some big shoes to fill. Uh, all told, uh, Stuart Rabinowitz spent more than 50 years on the Hofstra faculty, uh, and his presidential term of uh, two decades was marked by impressive growth, uh, including an enormous alliance with Northwell Health, 
the creation of the National Center for Suburban Studies, uh, New Entrepreneurship and Cybersecurity Centers. Uh, I believe all three of the uh, U.S. presidential debates hosted by Hofstra were on his watch. Uh, Like I said, that's kind of a tough act to follow. It is. He was here for 20 years. And as I said, it's, it's a wonderful foundation on which to further build uh, this great university. Uh, you're a lawyer by trade. You hold a law degree and a PhD in jurisprudence uh, and social policy from the University of California, Berkeley, at the University of uh, Illinois, Chicago, uh, where you were also vice chancellor for academic affairs, I think. Uh, you led the effort to create what became Chicago's first and only public law school. You also served as dean of the College of Law at the University of Nebraska. Now, President Rabinowitz was also a lawyer. He was a law professor at Hofstra and dean of the Hofstra Law School before ascending to the presidency. So is this just a coincidence, uh, or is there a reason Hofstra trustees keep putting lawyers in charge? Well, I can't answer what the Hofstra trustees, uh, what they were thinking. I can say that um, although I do have a law degree and practiced very briefly and was a law professor like uh, Stuart Rabinowitz, Um, I have spent my whole career in actually big public universities, so I'm bringing a uh, a wide array of experiences here to this smaller, from my perspective, uh, private university. Uh, By no stretch are you a one-trick pony, so to speak. Uh, Your academic and professional background is quite varied. Uh, And I don't just mean being a classical pianist, which you are, and which is very cool. Uh, You graduated with honors from Swarthmore uh, College, where you studied ancient Greek. Uh, You were a member of the Economic Club of Chicago, uh, the National Board of the ACLU, uh, and the Strategic Air and Space Museum in Omaha. Uh, You served on a special delegation to Israel appointed by Chicago Mayor Rahm Emanuel. Uh, There's lots more in your bio, but this is only a 30-minute show. Uh, So let me ask, how do these myriad experiences shape a university president? Well, you know, I could go to them one by one. Some of the things that you mentioned were really a function of the job that I was in at the time, like the Space Museum in Omaha. We had a space law program at the University of Nebraska College of Law. So there was a very close connection there, as strange as that sounds with my background. Um, Being a Greek major at Swarthmore has given me a lifelong belief in the power and the importance of a liberal arts education. And so that's very relevant to coming to a university to be the president at a time when there is growing skepticism about Uh, the liberal arts and whether they lead to a successful career and so on and so forth. I believe that they do because they teach just basic skills um, for any career and also for living a sort of happy and productive life. Mm -hmm. So, you know, there there are many examples of, of ways in which the things that you mentioned absolutely are helpful to me as background in this particular position at Hofstra. Is there a post or a position uh, from your past that I failed to mention or one that just particularly influences you now? Well, um, you know, I, I mean, the major jobs that I had were absolutely the dean at the University of Nebraska College of Law and the provost and vice chancellor for academic affairs mm. uh, at the University of Illinois, Chicago. I, I was also a clerk to a federal judge in the Third Circuit Court of Appeals in 
Philadelphia after law school, and that taught me a lot about uh, law, looking at it from the other side, from the from the judge's point of view, you might say. Mm-hmm. Um, but you know, the my two major academic positions were those two that you mentioned. Uh, you are also now a member of the Long Island Association Board of Directors, which I understand is relatively new uh, new to you. Uh, you hail originally from New York City, uh, but you've obviously studied, lived, and worked all over the country. Uh, I imagine a seat on the Association Board is a sort of a Long Island crash course. Uh, have you learned anything so far or um, that you didn't know? Well, I've only been able to go to one board meeting um, since I was appointed on August 1st, or since I began on August 1st at Hofstra. Um, What I've learned is that there seems to be a very collaborative and close-knit business community that works really well together here on Long Island. And um, so I'm very much looking forward to getting to know the folks on the board and also, you know, getting more involved in the community, the, the civic community and the political community um, of Long Island, because Hofstra is a real engine for economic growth here. Mm-hmm. And um, But this is all in front of me at this point. I, I believe I'm getting close to my hundredth day in this position, but that's about it. Uh, that engine of uh, economic ingenuity, so to speak, uh, was a big part of your predecessor's term. Uh, and Hofstra boasts many associations with other institutions and organizations ar- around the region. Uh, the largest, arguably, uh, is your collaboration with Northwell Health, through which you run a medical school and a nursing school. Um, how critical is that alliance in particular uh, with New York State's largest healthcare provider, uh, even beyond training future doctors and nurses? Well, it's absolutely critical. And um, I'm in conversations with uh, the CEO there, Michael Dowling, about things that we can, ways in which we can build upon uh, our connection going forward. I mean, we have a School of uh, Health Professions here at Hofstra, and there are many, many connections that they can make with Northwell uh, as well. Um, There's also a really strong research arm of Northwell Health in the Feinstein Institute, and that's another thing that I'm very interested in us connecting up with, uh, particularly, you know, for example, in the area of bioengineering, which is very strong at Hofstra in our School of Engineering. It's big in this region, uh, bioengineering, of course, uh, across Long Island. It's a bit of a a biotech corridor. Cybersecurity also is a huge topic in these and every other parts, I should say. Um, What have you learned about the Cybersecurity Center uh, at Hofstra that impresses you? And what do you, where do you hope to take it? We have a very strong cybersecurity center at Hofstra. I just got a tour of it and met with the faculty member who is running it, and some students uh, showed me the kinds of things that they can do. Um, This is part of the Zarb School of Business here, and so they're making really important interdisciplinary connections uh, with with the School of Business and um, also with our engineering school. It's interesting you bring up that word interdisciplinary. Uh, you know, we, we've mentioned biotech, we've mentioned cybersecurity, but these things hardly exist in a vacuum. Um, at, from the top down, how do you make sure that uh, disparate programs sort of play nicely with each other? What's your role in that? Well, um, you know, my role is in part in thinking about the kinds of faculty that we need to hire 
But, you know, my experience at uh, the University of Illinois, Chicago, uh, is that in order to seed interdisciplinary work, sometimes it's as simple as making sure faculty across the campus know what each other are doing. And that can be done through a program which I ran at UIC in, in Chicago and have now we're now introducing here, uh, and we call them research mixers. And basically, we pick a topic. It could be um, robotics. It could be transportation. We even did one on justice. Put it out there and invite faculty who are in any way doing writing or research on that topic to meet at a certain time and do very short uh, presentations of their research and their scholarship for the others to listen to. Hmm. And that was a very successful way in Chicago of building interdisciplinary programs because faculty, it was as simple as faculty simply learning about the other kinds of research that are going on uh, on the campus. What other off-campus collaborations are most important to Hofstra besides Northwell? Are there any particular other schools or organizations or institutions that are play an important role in what you're trying to do? Well, we are very involved with the community here in Hempstead and you know larger uh, across Long Island, um, including you know, organizations that are working on food insecurity, that are working on immigration, uh, the, certainly the grade schools and high schools are of great interest to us and we work with them. We send tutors in uh, to work with students, for example, in Hempstead. So we have uh, tentacles out all over Long Island in many, many different civic and community organizations. So I would say that's equally important to us as Northwell. Uh, now, uh Dr. Poser, you are uh, famously data-driven when it comes to student retention and graduation rates. I think Hofstra currently has a graduation rate of, of 63 or 65%, whatever the exact number is for comparison's sake. It's slightly below the SUNY graduation rate and slightly above the average rate for national public universities. Um, so how does crunching the numbers help you improve that rate? Well, first of all, I, I would like to say that our graduation rate for um, 2021 was 70%. So no, we went actually from I stand 65 corrected. to 70%. We were at 65 before that. So it has been moving up. Um, you know, graduation rates can be predicted pretty closely by retention rates. And when you talk about retention rates in, in this sense, you're talking about retention from uh, freshman to sophomore year, first year to second year. Um, and so we can predict within a, a pretty small window what graduate, what six-year graduation will be based on first to second year graduation. And so the first thing that has to be done is that we have to uh, move up our retention numbers um, in order to um, have a better chance of more students graduating. The second thing is um, we have to think about student success after the second year. So how can we get to the very top of that window uh, so that our retention predicts the highest possible graduation rate? Uh, I'm a big believer in data because if you follow data, that is, you know, students who do well in certain majors graduate, you know, higher or lower than others. Uh, we have to also look out for what's called the equity gap, um, which is the gap between students of different racial uh, and eth you know, ethnicities 
retaining and graduating at different rates. And these are all things that we can easily measure and identify. And once you can identify them through data, you can start to think about programs that will um, you know, make things better and increase those rates. So data is absolutely necessary in order to understand where we are and to set goals for the future. And then you start to look at programs and create metrics for those programs. And you, know, you can measure how they're doing as well. Um, this is not intuitive. Much of it is not intuitive, uh, and you've got to measure it. In other interviews and news features, uh, you've referred to the COVID pandemic as a portal. Uh, what did you mean by that? Well, I got that term from an article by an Indian novelist named uh, Arundhati Roy, and um, she wrote an article in the Financial Times in 2020 about, it was really about the pandemic and what was going on in India at the time. But at the end of the article, she made an analogy of the pandemic to a portal. And the idea is it's, it's, a, it's a moment in time, and historically this has been true for other pandemics, when we experience you know, some really horrible things and it's the result, and as a result, people tend to reconsider uh, their lives, their careers, uh, how they spend their time, where they live, and so on and so forth. And we can see all of this happening uh, with this pandemic. And so she marks it sort of as a moment where we can make a choice about what things we will continue to do from before the pandemic and what things we want to now make an intentional choice to change and do differently. Um, and so again, you can see this going on the way work is changing, uh, yes. more people are being remote, the way people have moved and uh, you know moved away from cities, although hopefully those will come back. Uh, and so I think of it as a moment also for Hofstra uh, at a much smaller scale to think about, you know, what we want to be as we move forward and what things do we want to, as Roy says, leave behind and what things do we want to carry forward with us and then create and imagine for the future. And that's, that's something that I'm trying to engage the whole campus in right now uh, to think about. Uh, indeed, at your inauguration, you announced uh, what uh, I think you said would be a year-long effort to solicit input from the Hofstra community uh, on exactly the things you just said uh, as a way of sort of charting the university's future. Uh, what kind of changes do you envision or also uh, what kind of, of things you imagine retaining as the university moves forward? How do you choose what to keep and what to, what to change? Well, as you say, we're going to start by doing focus groups across the whole campus and, and alumni and the trustees. Uh, and we're also going to do a survey so that anybody who wants to contribute to this and participate in it, who didn't happen to be in a focus group, has the opportunity um, to do that. When I look at Hofstra, you know, what I see is that over the past 10 or 20 years, there's been a very big focus on building the endowment, which has been very successful, um, and in capital improvements. We have an absolutely beautiful campus with very cutting edge uh, facilities and, you know, inside the facilities, uh, a lot of great programs. Mm -hmm. What I'm thinking now is that 
we've built a great foundation now to turn our attention more towards the academic enterprise. Um, think about building more destination programs. We have some wonderful destination programs. And by that, I mean programs that students come from all over the country uh, to participate in. Uh, also, you know, diversifying the faculty. There's a big demographic change happening in this country. It's been happening for a long time. But this is going to be a country that has no ethnic or racial, racial majority uh, within the next 20 years. And we have to make sure that our faculty uh, reflects that. And so I'm very interested in adding more diversity to our faculty and also in increasing our research profile. That is, um, you know, in increasing the amount uh, and type of research that's done at Hofstra. Is that a reflection of diversity in the faculty? Um, it sure can be. I don't. I don't think they're necessarily um, related, but they certainly could be. What role does the president's office play in innovation like that? Uh, this is a, obviously a a. It's smaller to you, but it's it's pretty big school with a lot of faculty members and a lot of students with a lot of uh, different interests. Sometimes conflicting interests. Sometimes uh, they they work quite well together, but all of that is sort of part of the same chunk of clay that needs to be molded. So uh, how does the president's office do that molding? Well, you know, for things like diversifying the faculty, that's a function of how we do searches and how we think about them. And that's certainly something that the president's office and the provost's office can support. Uh, in terms of increasing research and scholarship, again, you can't ask faculty to do these things without providing them the support, both pre-grant and post-grant, um, you know, support to help them write and also um, administer uh, any grants that come in. Um, mm -hmm. And similarly with you know, building more destination programs, that's really a function of, of the schools making decisions about where their strengths lie and what they want to build. Um, and then we have to figure out a way to hire faculty uh, in order to build those programs. So is that, okay, so no, really, please. Yeah. I was going to say it really comes down to identifying programs and uh, building faculty around them. Is that then your definition of innovation, at least in, in, in these terms, uh, identifying strengths and, and either adding to them or supporting them where necessary? Well, I wouldn't say it's my definition of innovation, but I think we can be very innovative in doing this. Again, going back to what we were talking about before, you know, thinking about how interdisciplinary programs would play into uh, these decisions about uh, building programs and, and faculty. So I think it can be very innovative, uh, but there are many ways to be innovative. It's not just uh, about building academic programs. Uh, Dr. Poser, it is abundantly clear that Hofstra University has handed the keys to a, a true leader uh, and a delightful talk show guest uh, to boot. So thank you so much for your sharing your insights with us today. Uh, before I let you go, we like to play a little game here at Spark, wherein I torture my guests by getting them to reveal little insights into their personal selves. Uh, I have these two cards here marked, which is your favorite and why, and word association, which is the kind of first word that pops into your head thing you see in the movies. Uh, and you get to choose, Doctor. So what are we going to play today? 
Well, uh, the word association kind of scares me a little, so I think I'm going to go with the favorite. Uh, you know, we get we get that a lot. <laughs> uh, I, I may have to make it, which is your favorite wine, some other choice, because nobody chooses the word association. Yeah, I, well, I you never know it, what's going to pop out of your mouth. That's the problem. It is psychologically <laughs> terrifying. I understand. All right, which is your favorite and why then? Uh, we'll start with an easy one for a classical pianist such as yourself. Uh, what is your favorite piece of classical music? Oh, that's a very hard one. Um, well, I will pick the one that I actually decided I would play for my, uh, well, one of my big birthdays. I'll leave it there, um, <laughs> which is a trio for piano, violin, and cello by Franz Schubert. He actually wrote two trios, uh, Opus 99 and Opus 100, and the one we did was Opus 99. We being you had a, a cellist, etc., with you when you played your piece? Yes. All right. Uh, what is your favorite swimming stroke? And for those who don't know, Dr. Oh. Poser is also an avid swimmer. Well, I would say the crawl, but I, I'm, I'm just learning, teaching myself or reteaching myself, I should say, to do the backstroke. Uh, so I'm now, uh, I'm now doing the backstroke, the breaststroke, and the crawl. But I would say the crawl is my favorite. But you know what my real favorite thing to do in the pool is? Uh Water polo. <laughs> no, the flip turns. I learned to do flip turns oh. just a few years ago. My daughter taught me, and I, I love doing flip turns. I can't. I'm a swimmer myself, and I could never master the, the flip turn. It's a swim to the wall and tag it and then kick <laughs> off for me. Um, your favorite building on the Hofstra campus? Oh, well, I, I, uh, that, I, I think I'll say Hofstra Hall, which is the original building, which belonged to uh, Kate and William Hofstra, uh, and was given to, uh, well, it was the, the original building of Hofstra in the 1930s. Have you yet chosen a favorite Hempstead lunch spot? Oh gosh, no. I tend to eat at my desk most of the time. Well, then that's your favorite Hempstead lunch. <laughs> I guess your desk. <laughs> uh, how about your favorite alma mater? My favorite alma mater, you mean of my own? Yes. Of the schools that I went to? Yes. Well, I think I'd have to say Swarthmore. Is there a particular reason? Youth, uh, yeah. friends you made there? Youth or just and, and dig ancient Greek? Yeah, dear, dear friends that I still have and wonderful faculty and, you know, spending those four really important years of my life there. Yeah. How about uh, besides Hofstra, of course, uh, your favorite university where you've worked? Oh gosh, this is. Uh, um, <laughs> I, I think I would. I would say the University of Illinois Chicago. It, it's a really a marvelous place with a, just wonderful, wonderful people, dedicated uh, faculty working there. Cool town too, and a very cool town. Uh, last but not least, your favorite part of higher education. My favorite part of higher education. Finding great faculty, filling young minds, uh, oh, get, yeah. getting the keys to all the campus buildings. <laughs> I would say connecting with the students. And, and that has been of particular uh, fun here at Hofstra. And, you know, one of the reasons that I wanted to come to what, again, for me is a smaller place, because I have the opportunity really to be out and about on the campus and meet the students and um, and see them in action. I I went just yesterday to see Macbeth, uh, our mm. Shakespeare production, our Shakespeare Festival production of Macbeth, which was just outstanding. 
And so to see the, the talent of the students and get to meet them and talk to them has just really been wonderful and very gratifying. Dr. Susan Poser, you're as elegant as you are brilliant, and you're a great sport. Thank you again for coming on the show, and let's do it again sometime. Great. Thank you very much. This was very nice. She is the freshly minted president at Hofstra University. I am the editor over at InnovateLI.com, and this is Spark, the Innovate Long Island podcast. Sincerest thanks, as always, to Innovate Long Island president Marlene McDonald. Our learned season two sponsor, Thermalift, which is taking the home and commercial heating and cooling industries to school with the TC3, the cost-efficient and environmentally unparalleled heat pump that is absolutely rewriting the book on energy efficiency. Thanks also to our intrepid man in the chair, Mr. Arthur Germain, and all the amazing scholars over at Brand Telling. And of course, thank you, dear listener, for your time your ears, and your mental space. We'll be back in class next week. Until then, hit the books and keep on learning. You've been listening to Spark, the Innovate Long Island podcast with host Gregory Zeller. To recommend a guest, please contact us at editor at innovateli.com. And to learn how you can become a frontline leader in carbon reduction, please visit our sponsor, Thermolift, at thermoliftenergy.com, where the future of clean energy is happening right now.